So I, I would like to speak about ethics. The loose translation of the Pali Sila, ethics and morality. And perhaps the first thing to say is that I think it's uh, an endless subject. So this talk certainly will end, I hope, um, and I'm sure you hope. Um, but in itself, I don't, I don't think humanity will ever get to the end of its exploration, consideration, inquiry into ethics and that whole subject. It will never be finished for us, complete, uh, all figured out. And in that way, it's a subject like, for example, emotions, human emotion, which I've said before, I also don't think humanity will ever reach a complete, final understanding of the human heart of emotions. Or a subject like healing, or psychology in general, or certain philosophical subjects like ontology. So these, in a way, unfathomably deep and rich domains of our concern open themselves up endlessly, they're endlessly fecund for exploration, endlessly complex, endlessly open to different and competing uh, perspectives and interpretations, views and opinions, theories, frameworks, etc., so there's all kinds of problems involved, all kinds of difficulties and challenges, but at least the way I relate to those kinds of subjects and that endlessness which they seem to open out to or contain within themselves, so to speak, is that it, rather than um, walking away from that, the, the complexity, the problematic, the endlessness of it, it actually invites us onward. And we have a certain calling or duty or, or destiny to take those explorations further as much as we can in our generation. So it's important to talk about these subjects because they need us, in a way, to keep progressing uh, the discourse, the consideration, the problematic inquiry, to keep wrestling to keep experimenting is not easy, but it's endlessly fertile. And so, one implication of that is whatever I offer here in this talk is going to be incomplete. It's incomplete because of what I've just said about the nature of the subject. So it's appropriate that it's incomplete. I mean, it's also incomplete because of lots of other reasons, but there's a fundamental reason why it's in, incomplete and it's completely appropriate that it's incomplete because that's I think the nature of this subject of this realm of inquiry this realm of concern okay so ethics I should say just right at the beginning I'm going to use the words ethical and moral interchangeably I know some people uh, make distinctions in how they use those words but um, for the purposes of this talk I'm going to use them interchangeably, so kind of at random. They mean the same thing, as far as I'm concerned, for now. And what I want to go into is 
a little bit at least um, and open out again for a reflection for consideration for possible avenues of practice and conceiving is the relationship of soul and ethics soul and sila um, soul making dharma and imaginal practice and ethics um, buddha dharma and the, the wider range of buddha dharma um, in, in its relationship with ethics and then even wider, you know, the wider culture, our contemporary, practically global culture now, and ethics in that, in that setting. And I want to include particularly, you know, the need for, I think, the need for a sort of expansion of our ethical thinking to consider our ethical relationship with the earth with the planet that we come from and that we live on, that is our home, and with regards to such pressing issues as climate change and species extinction, etc. Okay, so big subject, and uh, way too way too big really, but let's, let's see what, what we can do. should point out, actually, as we begin, that tonight is really just an introduction to this larger talk on ethics. It's just the introductory part. So many of the pieces I touch on tonight, I will hopefully pick up later as we go through uh, on on future evenings. Um, But to begin, uh, let me just repeat something that I've said a few things that I've said regarding the wider culture, our wider uh, cultural inheritance around morality and Buddha Dharma. Just, just a few brief things there. I don't want to spend too long here. Generally, I don't like repeating, otherwise the talks will really go on forever. But this I've said before, I can't remember where, perhaps in Necessity of Fancy, perhaps a few other places. So, um, in the West, in the, in the modern West, we have a complex as a complex inheritance, a complex heritage flowing down to us, so to speak, from the Judeo-Christian outlook on morality, on ethics, and even more the Islamic outlook, the Abrahamic religions. And their view with regard to morality seems to most people to have the flavor of good and evil, right and wrong. And there is in all that a fear of punishment, fear of everlasting punishment from God, and a kind of guilt that accrues with that. And actually, I think there's a lot that's extremely beautiful in those traditions. So I'm just pulling out, it's too brief right now, just pulling out in a grossly oversimplified way. So apologies for that. Some salient features for our purposes right now. So a kind of dualism between good, evil, right and wrong, it's framed that way, and with that can go this fear of punishment, uh, which in many cases uh, can be really quite severe, and and guilt, um, that can also be really, really painful. Of course, as individuals, how this uh, complex heritage from the Abrahamic religions filters down into each individual life, or the context of each individual life, uh, varies widely, depending on all kinds of um, conditions and, and factors in upbringing and personality and situation and education and all kinds of things. 
but as a society that's there in, in the soup, in the mix. By contrast, to a certain extent, Buddha Dharma, and if, if you know Buddha Dharma, especially from the insight meditation tradition, but really right from the start, Buddha uh, framed his ethical teaching more in terms of what's kusala and unkusala, um, either skillful or unskillful. Sometimes it can be translated as wholesome or unwholesome. Um, but basically, what that means is what leads to suffering and what perpetuates suffering and what alleviates suffering. So that the whole thrust of, of the ethics in, in the ethical training in the sila is in the service of alleviating suffering and is less cast in terms of good, evil, right and wrong. But even that statement, even that contrast is actually uh, not so black and white true. But generally speaking, most people who come to Buddha Dharma, um, if they've had a painful history with notions of good and evil, right and wrong from the Abrahamic religion, religion's heritage and the fear of punishment and guilt, find some uh, more spaciousness and softness and uh, relief from that in the, in the Buddha Dharma's presentation of it as we inherit it in the West, but certainly also from the beginning with the Buddha. Coupled with the fact that Western Buddha Dharma, a lot of Western Buddha Dharma, actually, certainly the insight meditation, has a, a large component of its offering that tries to address and alleviate self-judgment, the pandemic of self-judgment in our Western culture. So both the emphasis away from good and evil, right and wrong, onto the relief of suffering or the complication of suffering and the softening of self-judgment means that for many people the approach to ethics and the way it's presented and laid out in the Buddha Dharma as they come to it is more uh, spacious and palatable, not for everyone. Um, in, in fact, um, as I said, it's not that simple because um, if you take on board the Buddha's teachings of uh, rebirth and karma, then if you do something in this life, you can pay karmically with a, I wouldn't call it a punishment, that's not the way karma is thought of, but it has karmic effects that are effectively um, similar to a kind of punishment, um, except they may not be eternal, um, they may still last a long time. Um, but since modern, a lot of modern Western Buddhism doesn't really buy into that whole paradigm of rebirth, etc., and the karmic punishments there. Um, most modern Western Buddhism just focuses on the um, the attention to an interest in how we compound suffering in the moment, in our lives, as patterns of psychology and behavior, action, speech, and thought, and how we can alleviate that. And the ethics is generally set within that. But right from the beginning, the Buddha, uh, uh, the intention of the sila, of the ethical training, was really in the service of simplifying, calming and simplifying the mind. So that even the thrust of the third hindrance, restlessness and worry, um, the fourth hindrance, um, uh, 
one of the meanings implicit in that is that there's the putting down, the release of the kind of worry and restlessness that's, that arises in the mind and in a being when they're worrying about what they've done wrong, about who will find out what they've done wrong or regret or uh, remorse or guilt, etc. So it, even that, in the context of... Um, the, the Buddha's threefold training, the sila has this um, thrust towards enabling a simplifying of the mind, enabling a relative amount of peace, which then opens the doorway for deeper samadhi, for jhana, which serves insight, which um, delivers liberation and the end of rebirth. So that the five precepts, as they've sort of come to us over history, five precepts for lay practitioners, are in a way in the service of simplifying. They're a minimum. And one way of, I'll come back to this, one way of approaching them is not to, um, not to think about it much. Just keep the precepts and, and then don't worry about it. The whole purpose is not to worry. So one, if you keep your, uh, keep within the parameters of those five precepts, and then just forget about it. And, and don't really uh, uh, trouble the mind and trouble the being, wrestling with complex ethical issues, etc., because their function of their ethics is to simplify and to calm. So they, they, they serve as a kind of uh, minimum. One isn't really invited in... It's only in the presentations of Theravada Dharma, one isn't really invited into a kind of deep pondering and grappling with ethical issues in one's life. In some modern presentations, I'm thinking now of Thich Nhat Hanh, the, ethical, the Buddhist ethical precepts, the five precepts, are expanded to include their positive manifestations. So not taking what is not given extends to include practicing generosity, etc. And there's, again, that's something I'll come back to, the practice of virtues, etc., um, some people within the Buddha Dharma still are drawn to or feel compelled to, to to grapple with complex ethical issues. So there's a sort of minimum given the five precepts. There's a sort of extra when we add the positive manifestations and the positive um, directions that Thich Nhat Hanh points to. Um, and then some, some percentage of people is, is drawn to really ponder and grapple with these issues. Um, but so as Western Buddhists, if if you like, um, we receive a, a very complex inheritance um, around ethics because even if we may have never been subject to the kind of um, heavy duty presentation of Abrahamic. Abrahamic morality um, in our personal lives, in our family, in our upbringing, education, it still, as I said, filters into the culture and it forms part of the fabric, the sort of, um, I think, almost um, fraying fabric of the Western cultural uh, thinking and feeling around ethics. So we we carry that inheritance with us to some degree or other, and, we, and then we also have this inheritance from the Buddha Dharma and this other way of thinking. They're mixed; these two are mixed together. We never um, 
I think it's hard for us, anyone in the West, to completely um, uh, uh, remove themselves from that Abrahamic uh, inheritance. Um, so we get this mixture somewhere in our psyche, in our minds, uh, the mixture of the, what we've received from Buddha Dharma and the, and the Abrahamic religions. Throw into that mix the sort of um, modernist, rising modernist uh, uh, inclination, tendency of individualism. And I can think what I want, I can do what I want, I can choose what I want. Um, also extends to some extent into, into the choices and opinions about right and wrong. But this culture of individualism, for the most part in our culture, and maybe it's a necessary evolutionary step, I think it is, but in its more immature aspects, which um, uh, to some extent, you know, you'll have to decide how widespread you think that is, but in, in some of its immature aspects, um, one can wonder how deep and authentic is um, a person's autonomy here. Um, Said, how widespread are we talking about? Most people, I don't know. Um, is it just my right to pursue pleasure? And that's that's my individualism and my autonomy. And actually, it's not really autonomous at all. I'm just driven by my, I'm just pulled like a puppet on a string towards um, pleasure. And I now have um, enough elbow room in society's thinking to um, insist on my right to pursue that pleasure no matter uh, or, or as far as I can um, until the law stops me or, or it just seems outrageous in terms of its effects on other people. So we've got this double inheritance from the Abrahamic religions and modern uh, and, and Buddha Dharma and then the, the emphasis also in modern Western Buddha Dharma on, on uh, uh, letting go of self-judgment. They're mixed. Throw into that mix a kind of individualism and a sort of invitation to think for oneself. Uh, one questions how deep and autonomous that is, that thinking is. One also has to throw into the mix the flip side, the shadow side, if you like. Um, uh, maybe that's not the best word. The flip side of of um, the kind of individualism that is for the most part prevalent in the wider society. And that flip side is the inner critic. So living in a world where we where it's uh, where we conceive ourselves individually and less communally, um, despite some of the rhetoric that goes in newspapers, etc., um, where there is this sort of emphasis on you can choose, you can have what you want, and all this array of choice in so many areas, um, with a degree of alienation from uh, community, earth, etc., uh, is the the flip side of the individualism is the inner critic and uh, uh, the, the, the pain that that can, can bring and some of that uh, can attach to anything uh, of course in one's uh, being but it can, um, some of it can attach regarding ethics and of course that can hook up with the heritage of the tendency to a kind of um, n- narrow and unhelpful guilt that we get from the Abrahamic religions and actually, I'll come back to guilt in later talks because I think guilt is interesting and not not so simple. But the inner critic can often be is often the flip side of, of a kind of individualism. And when 
at its worst, it can actually be quite incapacitating, quite debilitating and limiting in in what it does to our uh, our ethical capacity, our ethical sensitivity, and our ethical range and courage. Um, we can become too self-preoccupied um, and uh, sort of, um, the inner critic is a state of self-preoccupation and self-anxiety and that can block our ethical sensitivity which is too concerned with our, our self and our own pain too contracted that way so you've got all these factors in the mix can throw in a couple more one is um, so on the one hand you've got a culture a wider culture that um, uh, kind of celebrates at a certain level of individualism which we might say certainly from the perspective of soul making dharma is still a kind of um, immature individualism an immaturely enchanted individualism um, and at, at the same time, what you've got in s- some, maybe most Dharma circles, Buddha Dharma circles, is a kind of anti-individualism. Because there's all this talk about the emptiness of the self, and, um, and again, we get a little confused what that means. Am I trying to sort of um, tone down my personality, or erode it, or hide, or not stick out like a sore thumb, or uh, not be too colourful, or etc.? So you get these conflicting heritages all all mixed together as part of our uh, collective inheritance. And of course, impacting each of us very uh, uniquely and differently. But this is all in the mix. And to some extent, all of it will impact all of us. And then lastly, and again, I've I've pointed all this out before. Um, Lastly... Uh, what you have is an inheritance uh, in the Buddha Dharma, certainly in Theravadan Buddha Dharma, in the insight meditation tradition, is um, certain images, stories uh, of a certain archetype of what awakening looks like that tends to be quite limited in its range and is not also recognized as an archetype, as a fantasy, as an image, and therefore has a kind of insidious power over us. Because the Buddha statues are there, the stories are there, the tone is there, the presentation styles are there. Um, uh, Something is communicated. This is what awakening looks like, feels like, um, how it expresses itself. And the archetype of that is, is, as I said, quite limited. Uh, The archetype of um, it looks peaceful, equanimous, um, unemotional, except for perhaps some metta or some compassion. It doesn't have a lot of wrestling with complex issues um, or difficult moral moral, um, problems and situations. There is this simplicity of being that's part of the archetype. And there isn't, for instance, the ferocious warrior, for example, certainly in the as I said, the Theravada and the insight meditation. So all that is part of the heritage we receive. In that case, less verbally, or as much non-verbally as verbally. I do think, even in recent months, um, certainly in England, that that is beginning to change, beginning to change. Um, And there's a wider exploration of archetypal expressions, which I think is wonderful. So 
as I said, I may come back to all of this, but just the point now is just how complex uh, this inheritance is, how multi-directional, how kind of self-contradictory it is. And there are, uh, so I've said all that before, but there are other issues that I haven't maybe touched on so much that I want to um, uh, begin to open up tonight. In regard to our contemporary culture, one thing's a little bit worth pointing out about about the sort of trajectory of our relationship, our, if you like, our collective, there's always going to be individual variations, but if you like, of course there will be, but if you like, our collective relationship with morality, with ethics. And borrowing again from Alistair McIntyre and his book After Virtue, which I mentioned um, in one of the recent talks, he looks at the history of this word moral, and interestingly he said, Moral is the etymological descendant of moralis from the Latin, but moralis, like its Greek predecessor ethikos, so we get the word ethical from the Greek, ethikos, means pertaining to character, and actually came into the Latin from from the Greek. So the ethos is the character, the flavor of um, either a person's character or the character of an institution or the character of a society or uh, we talk about the ethos and that's where we get the word ethical so it pertains to character and the word moralis from latin which we get the word moral from is also meaning pertaining to character and he says where a man's character a person's character is nothing other than their set of dispositions to behave systematically in one way rather than another to lead one particular kind of life so it's really the the kind of quality, flavor, tenor, character of the whole set of yes, dispositions that pertain to a, a person or an institution or a society, etc. But he goes on, and, and this I think is interesting, is to trace a kind of narrowing of the meaning of the word moral. So... It is in the late 17th century, he writes, that it is used for the first time in its most restricted sense of all, that in which it has to do primarily with sexual behavior. So there's a word that was quite wide, and then somehow uh, got, got squeezed tighter and tighter, and ended up having to do mostly with sexual behavior. And he asks, how could it come about that being immoral could be equated even as a special idiom with being sexually lax? And he probably wants to write about is tracing that whole history there. But one of the important points is that with the Western Enlightenment, there was a sort of divorce of morality from theology, aesthetics, and law. This was part of the separation, if, if you like, of separating out of religious concerns and issues and uh, concepts and assumptions from other concerns that were more based on uh, uh, the Western Enlightenment, the uh, scientific revolution, etc. And because morality as a, as a sphere of concern got separated out from, uh, say, religion, etc., and theological concerns, 
then it needed its own sort of justification. It, it was no longer justified with regard to divine law or, or religious um, proposition. So the attempts to provide a rational justification for morality in that historical period, and he traces it, say, say, 1630 to 1850, so around that period of the Western Enlightenment and the beginnings of modernity, that's when it acquired a sense at once general and specific, he said. In that period, morality became the name for that particular sphere in which rules of conduct, which are neither theological nor legal nor aesthetic, are allowed a cultural space of their own. Okay. It is only in the later 17th century and the 18th century when this distinguishing of the moral from the theological, the legal and the aesthetic has become a received doctrine that the project of an independent rational justification of morality becomes not merely the concern of individual thinkers but central to northern European culture. In other words, with the Western Enlightenment and the scientific revolution and, and to extent the Renaissance, there, there's this um, kind of trying to remove the dominance and infiltration of religious dogma and assertions and assumptions. Remove that, separate that out from the rest of human life and inquiry and society and science and law and morality, etc. Religion is separated out from morality, and morality is separated out from religion. And then because it's separated out, it needs its own rational justification. Rational justification was exactly what the Western Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution were about. So this sphere that's now separated out needs its own rational justification. And so enter um, the different philosophers, and Hume and Locke, Hobbes and J.S. Mill and Jeremy Bentham and Immanuel Kant and later G.E. Moore, etc. What was interesting, or what is interesting, is that that project to come up with, to deduce or derive or elucidate a rational justification for morality, all this series of great Western minds attempted it and failed. There was not an answer that was completely satisfying to everyone in terms of rationally justifying morality. So the project of modernity with regard to ethics, in a way, had this kind of very shaky foundation. It was attempted that foundations were built, but they they never really got built very well. And as time went on and modernity sort of... I don't know segued, um, disintegrated, whatever, into post-modernity, if we can even use those terms, it became more explicitly voiced by, by some people that actually any insistence on a unifying morality, on a universal morality, was inappropriate, impossible, for the same reasons that we talked about when we talked about postmodernism the other day. Now, of course, this is only one one sector of sort of thinkers, and and of course, in many respects, despite all this, you could say you could say, uh, in, or in some respects, that there has been 
if we can even say, great progress morally over the last few hundred years. There's also been completely not. One only has to look at the 20th century or look around us uh, these days to see the, the gaps, the problems, the shakiness, the uncertainties, the confusion and contradictions there. But some postmodern thinkers at least ruled out the possibility of any kind of universal ethics. And so what entered the field was a sort of relativism with regard to ethics and morality. Now, that wasn't received without a sense of problem. So people say, well, this is a problem, somehow we need to fix this. But it's very unclear, it seems very unclear, how to actually move out of that kind of um, confusion and quagmire. That it's kind of taboo to insist on a universal morality, and yet just a completely relative a complete relativism of any morals is also felt by many people to be problematic. So, again, we're in a kind of conundrum at the present, in a cauldron of mixed pools in in different directions, of confusions, of gaps, contradictions, etc. And it may be that we can look around us and say what we have now to a certain extent, there's a case, I think, to be made. What we have now in our society, and I'm thinking of, you know, UK society uh, and, and the US, is a very confused state of affairs with regard to, to ethics. So in some respects, we have law and a system of law that's, in, in many ways, it's supposed to be based on ethics, but it's actually kind of been divorced from ethics. Or another way of stating the problem is that the law is supposed to apply to everyone. It's supposed to be universal. Uh, Everyone is subject to the same law, allegedly. But underpinning that, uh, or supposedly underpinning that, is ethics, but but there is not an agreement, a universal agreement, on, on a universal ethics. So there is a mismatch there. And to some extent, from that mismatch, the law unmoors itself from an underpinning in ethics. So it kind of exists as something to respect, to preserve supposedly the stability and integrity of society, the law. But in many ways, it's not always rooted in concern for ethics or in something deeper. Obviously, it's not a complete divorce uh, between law and ethics, or of the law from an ethical underpinning, and much, I'm sure, of the original intention behind laws and of how they get updated in legislation at times is related to ethics. But there is a partial divorce, a partial disconnection, because there isn't the universal agreement on the ethical foundation of law. There's supposed to be, and sometimes it's assumed that there is, but actually it's not completely congruent. Two things about that. I mean, one one is, I'm thinking now of the Extinction Rebellion protests and things like that, and some of the clamour of objection and opposition to protesters. Um, so some voices were say, don't you care about law and order? You know, you're throwing that out the window by disrupting with your protests. But 
that kind of statement presupposes, or implicit in that kind of statement, is that law and order in themselves are kind of ultimately valuable, or more valuable than some ethical consideration, which which to me is ridiculous. One only need go back to certain societies, apartheid South Africa or Nazi Germany, and you could mention many others, of course, where law and order uh, might have held sway and been kept in place very well by the government and most members of society, either directly complicit or or um, indirectly complicitly. And yet it was holding up, it was part of the fabric, part of the structure of a fundamentally unethical system, apartheid and Nazism, etc., and the second thing in this confusion is that, in a way, what we have as part of the situation now is strident ethical cries from different perspectives that often conflict with each other, but have this kind of very strident tone. So you know, often only need to read headlines in some newspapers, Daily Mail or whatever, and in some areas or from some perspectives, shouting very loud with a sort of presumption of moral righteousness, and at the very same time, huge areas of complete uh, lack of concern or sympathy around other moral issues. So all this is part of the mix of confusion, the confusing mix in our contemporary cauldron. I mentioned Richard Rorty the other day and uh, sort of uh, used his as an example of some of the uh, lacunae, some of what's missing in our contemporary thinking about all this uh, coming out of postmodernism, etc. Um, so... As I said, he he used to often repeat that the important, the most important thing is to keep the conversation going. Um, that is, uh, that we should prioritize um, over epistemological and ontological inquiries and approaches. Um, we should prioritize continuing the conversation of the West. Was his phrase, um, but. And that was part of his concern with what he called solidarity and uh, morality. Now, as far as I know, he didn't actually write much about morality. And part of the reason, I think, is because because of his uh, approach left him with very little to say about it. Because we could ask, why is it good or important to keep the conversation, whatever that means, the conversation of the West going? Why is it good or important? And if we ask such a question, surely it leads that question, uh, perhaps via more questions, to some assertion. Some um, uh, assertion and belief in some fundamental principle or principles which need or, or needs dogmatic allegiance, or some epistemological ontological support. So, it, in a way, what his philosophy was a refusal of any inquiry into ontology and epistemology apart from deconstructing it. 
and yet this insistence on keeping the conversation going. But when you start to ask why, there's nothing underneath. Why is it good to keep the conversation going? Um, uh, as I said, and I don't know his writings encyclopedically at all, but from what I've delved into a little bit, he, he does seem to have very little to say regarding ethics and values. Um, and do do the the question I have is do those areas uh, regarding ethics and morality do do they need some kind of underpinning and orientation um, and uh, an underpinning uh, another level to explain to give us a sense of their import an orientation to what we call higher or more fundamental ideas principles values psychologies etc. Um, and could it be that the reason that someone like Richard Rorty has seems to have so little to say about ethics is because he absolutely refuses any kind of underpinning um, at a deeper level or a dimensionality or um, uh, an, another orientation to a sort of a sense of what is higher. Um, so I'll come back to that in a moment. But we might also ask again... Um, what if this conversation that he's referring to gets really silly or becomes a waste of time or is itself a distraction from other issues and demands? And when does, for example, hate speech and stupid conversation, um, uh, what do we do with that? And then there's this problem of the question of free speech, etc. But um, principally, as I said, his his insistence, his project and his insistence within his project on um, what he calls um, he, he wants to get rid of what he calls numinous notions. Numinous means there's another word for divine notions. Any notions of some other uh, deeper dimensions, higher sense of things, etc. He wants to get rid of that. So he, he just wants to say morality is uh, kind of, is, it just is. We need to te- think of our distinctive moral status as just that, rather than as grounded on our possession of, and then he gives a whole, whole list of other things. All these numinous notions are just expressions of our awareness that we are members of a moral community, um, uh, phrased in one or another pseudo-explanatory jargon. This awareness is something which cannot be further grounded. It is simply taken. Uh, it is simply taking a certain point of view on our fellow humans. The question of whether it is an objective point of view is not to any point. Um, so he's really, as I said, got this insistence on uh, removing any kind of deeper uh, level of grounding or anchoring or dimensionality, we, we might call, uh, say. He absolutely refuses it. I guess part of what I want to say through these talks on ethics is, is, is not that exactly what we need? And that without a sense of dimensionality and reference to something higher, a sense of something higher in which to ground our ethics, uh, we are just at, at sea in this quagmire of, of, of potential relativism. So again, what you get, what I 
sometimes find in, in Richard Rorty's writings is there are these slips where um, he uh, his language kind of betrays him so that he talks, for instance, about uh, we hope by acting this way in a certain situation, we hope to, quote, decrease our chances of acting badly. But what the question is, it, it's not explained, what does badly mean? And why is such an act a bad act? What, where does he get the moral rules from? And what are they grounded? So he's insisting on not grounding morality on anything, and yet he's insisting on morality. But what morality? And where does it get its sense of import? And um, uh, is it, where can we even find then a passion in relation to morality? Um, and similarly, when he talks about epistemologically more generally, uh, he, he talks about someone might have a good account of why they think this or why they believe this or why they explain their own behavior, ethical behavior this way or that way. They might have a good account or they might not. But again, what does it mean by a good account if he's refusing any inquiry into epistemology, epistemology apart from a deconstructive um, a deconstruction of it. Any inquiry into ontology, what do these words good and bad mean? How do we decide what's good and bad? They slip into into the writing, and again, to me, it, it uh, indicates, it uh, betrays gaps, lacunae, lack of consideration, lack of um, adequate explanation and adequate grounding. Uh, so, and I, just one more quote from him. There is no inferential connection between the disappearance of the transcendental subject of, he wrote man, let's say, of the human being as something having a nature which society can repress or understand, and the disappearance of human solidarity. So, in other words, his idea of any kind of um, depth to a human being in the sense of dimensionality, uh, which could be uh, understood or which could be blocked or repressed by society, etc. Any notion of that, the disappearance of this notion um, of, of a human being having those transcendental dimensions. And um, there's no inferential connection, he says, between that uh, disappearance in our time and the disappearance of human solidarity. So solidarity is a word he uses a lot in overlapping with morality. And then he writes, bourgeois liberalism seems to me the best example of the solidarity we have yet achieved. So I'm not sure about his phrase bourgeois liberalism. He uses it quite a lot and I think my suspicion is that he uses it, he uses it slightly provocatively. But I don't know, can bourgeois liberalism, whatever exactly he means from that, be separated from capitalism and democracy? Um, and so one of the things I think that's problematic right now is, is capitalism. I'll just return to that in a moment. But the other thing that's happened with postmodernity, again, is there's this, there's this um, separating out of ethics from... Um, law and theology and the sort of atrophying of theology and from aesthetics and from 
other concerns. And, um, and, and in, a, in a way, with the postmodern sort of, uh, or the, the, the presence in the mix of the postmodern uh, objection to and hesitancy about coming up with a, a universal moral, moral code or understanding of morality. In a way, what also goes with that is a kind of suspicion of power structures and a suspicion of uh, hegemony in terms of uh, who's deciding what is moral and what isn't. A suspicion, you know, uh, to some extent, of course, well-grounded in in the history of religious, uh, the abuse from religious institutions and over the years... Um, with, with that goes then the uh, promise of democracy as a sort of equalizing and everyone with their different opinions can get their say, etc. And of course that's a very wonderful thing in the democratic countries and um, a, 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 a real evolution in, in humanity. But I'm not sure recently in the last few years if I'm, I doubt I'm the only one, but sometimes, uh, much as I'm a believer and lover in democracy, I sometimes wonder whether I still believe in it any longer. Um, I mean, I do really, but I have some questions, and I'm sure, as I said, I'm not the only one. I don't not sure that I believe in the immunity of the people to various forms of manipulation, whether they're gross and subtle, um, manipulation by those in power, manipulation by those with uh, wealth, and certainly excessive wealth, um, by the interests of corporations, by the runaway juggernaut of, of that corporate interest, or simply um, whether, again, the people are um, uh, immune to the manipulation by the popular dominant view of things and of values and ethics, etc. Let alone uh, manipulation by you know, Russian cyber hackers and... Um, and also, you know, what we've been reading in the news in the last few years about the fact of uh, social media uh, infiltration in social media, but also the kind of closed social media circles. So you tend to get feeds into into your Facebook or whatever it is that just are selected based on what you like to look at. And someone with very different politics and very different views, very different uh, um, outlook will get... Uh, a similarly, a similarly closed um, feed, uh, and and be involved in a similarly closed social media circle, but very different, espousing very different views, very different, uh, divergent versions of the news. So seeing and sh- receiving and sharing, um, kind of quite different versions of reality. So democracy is then trying to function in in that um, in a, in a world where all these problematic issues 
of manipulation and distortion and uh, alienation are, are coming in through power, through wealth, through corporate interest, through just the dominant, uh, the dominant view that just has its kind of entrenched sort of power and influence. Um, heaven knows what's happening with uh, Russia and all that. And then this strange phenomenon of um, divergent, closed social media circles where we, where we get, uh, where we receive and share pictures of the world uh, implicit in which are values and ethical systems that are really quite divergent. And uh, without much uh, actual dialogue or meeting or opening out of views there. So in that, then this ideal of democracy, in that whole, um, again, uh, quagmire really, confusion, in that whole um, mess, democracy is trying to function, and uh, it's, it's, you know, um, it's pulled a couple of pegs down from, from the ideal of what democracy can be. Um, so, when Rorty talks about bourgeois liberalism, can that be separated from capitalism and, and democracy? And democracy now with fake news and all that, as I've just been talking about. Uh, so, there are other, if we, again, if we, if we just linger on the, the, the um, situation in, in our contemporary uh, civilization, our contemporary society and societies, there is um, this issue from um, the beginnings of modernity stretching through quite a while and tracing the history of the attempt to kind of ground and make sense of and make rational justifications of moral of morality in different ways they failed, there's the opening up of the postmodern sort of anti-universalism and anti, anti-truth, anti if you like, and the, the danger of the, the kind of quicksand of relativism there, of, of total relativism. And this sort of appeal to democracy, um, wonderful and yet increasingly uh, evident that it's uh, also problematic these days. And in all of that, then we live um, as well, we're considering our contemporary situation, um, we live in an increasingly globalized world, globalized society, so that when we consider ethics, it's, it's the immediate thing that should, hopefully is obvious, is just that our actions have consequences today. Um, our actions locally have consequences globally. And so what we buy... Uh, on the high street, certainly, you know, we'll buy on the high street what we buy from on the internet, um, how we uh, get our energy and feed our houses, all this has consequences across the globe. And we can no longer, um, as did the Buddha in his time, think of ethics as just pertaining to me and who it obviously involves. And these are the two parties. Um, if I lie to this person, if I um, cheat this person of something if I harm them in some in some way uh, it affects me and it affects them 
Um, we are living in a globalized society, and that and that makes uh, uh, it's almost like the the whole system, the whole ethical consideration and actions becomes a, a an infinitely more sensitive system. So what we do here has repercussions um, that we're beginning to learn more and more about them, but even that was only a, a drop in the ocean of the actual repercussions. And there's an, there's an immense complexity in that. It's very challenging. Part of globalization um, also is a globalized ca- capitalist thinking, globalized economy based on uh, capitalist economy with all the problems of um, the ideas of infinite economic growth on a finite uh, finite planet with finite resources etc there's also the problem with globalization of uh, a decrease in diversity diversities of all kind in fact so the the ethos of western um, Western free market capitalism um, and uh, all the fashions, etc., that pertain to that, the the culture, the way of life, the aspirations, um, all that increasingly has been globalized as well. So there's also a displacement and of a displacement disappearance of more. Traditional cultures, traditional values, etc. Traditional ways of life, traditional outlooks and aspirations. All kinds of decreases of diversity go with that globalization because what gets globalized is a certain outlook on life, a certain way of going about life, a certain ethos. And with that, a certain ethics. Um, But the... uh, All this implies um, that we need, I think humanity needs to rethink and perhaps expand and deepen our moral considerations. Uh, Or try to, try to, I don't think that's easy at all. And some of that might involve uh, looking at um, ontological considerations. Because I don't feel, um, for example, that what Richard Rorty has written or said um, on the subject has done much, much at all, really, um, to help things. Uh, So it might involve uh, further considerations of ontology, etc. Again, if we linger just a little bit longer on our sort of contemporary... A wider contemporary predicament in in the wider culture, um, we can also. Uh, what's interesting to me, one of the things that's interesting to me is that at some point along, at some point along the way, we seem to have lost the ideal of moral education. So the development of character, uh, especially in relation to sort of moral values and aspirations has has disappeared it seems mostly from western society um you you see it in uh religions and spiritual institutions 
and schools. Um, and only there is it kind of deemed uh, okay to instruct or direct or reprimand or encourage a person above, say, 18 years old. So it seems to be the sort of cut-off point about 18 years where you can um, subject someone to the order of the law. You can put them in prison or whatever. But there's not really this idea of moral education. So as I said, law has kind of, in some respects, law has kind of trumped or replaced ethics as a foundation. But, but, but what is the law founded on? Now, of course, partly it's founded on ethics, as I said, but partly it becomes this sort of free-floating thing that it's its, its own raison d'etre. And something happens about 18 years where it's considered a bit taboo to t- kind of educate someone outside of very specific um, uh, contexts. So a person uh, to, 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 as I said, to direct or reprimand, instruct, encourage a person above about 18 years um, on the path towards what we might call higher and nobler and fuller and more sensitive and wise values and aspirations, it's somehow it's not okay. It's okay maybe where there's some agreed-upon goal or aim to strive for. So, for example, if you're in a football team, or if you listen to how football team managers talk about their players or the players talk about each other or a military union a uh, unit for example there the whole idea of character and remember that word character is related to the word moral and ethical um, so character in this moral sense is uh, something whose development is encouraged so talk about giving everything for the team and or, or whatever it is or um, the courage and, 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 and this and that and ran his heart out and all, all this. Um, so it's only in, in this um, kind of enclosed circles where there's a very specific goal or aim that it's understood. If you're in this team, if you're in this military unit, this is what we're trying to do. And therefore we have this, um, therefore we can use ethical language and we can use, uh, we can use moral language and we can use um we can kind of value people dependent on their uh, development uh, in in those moral areas, and we can instruct and reprimand and, and etc. Um, but in those uh, limited contexts, only really is that ethical development encouraged or spoken about only really to the degree of breadth, height, depth uh, that reflects whatever the breadth, height, and depth of the conception of the goal is. So if it's a football team, it's just about, the, you know, the football or whatever. Um, and even prisons, as far as I can tell, and again, I'm not really in that world, but even prisons, in the, certainly in the UK and the US, they don't seem to prioritise moral development. So there's punishment, and there's maybe the opportunity to educate oneself in different ways. But the idea of moral development doesn't, I could be wrong here, but doesn't seem to be um, on the agenda, as if it's a, there's some kind of taboo with it that I think relates to this confusion around morality and the reluctance and taboo of imposing any uh, moral system 
even in an educative way, on, on someone else. Um, so, you know, so part of the, the, the wider confusion, again, some people may pass judgment on, um, some people do pass judgment on others' lack of moral sensitivity or moral refinement, um, evolution, aspirations. And other people would view that judgment or opinion as snobbish. Uh, but as a society, we don't, as, again, we don't really have anything other than the law to indirectly and only hopefully teach and encourage moral values. And this is part of the kind of lacuna and paralysis left by uh, the kind of, uh, say, postmodernism, or really the drift into postmodernism from the sort of um, the, the incompleteness and the failings of modernity. And all that is part, of course, of why uh, 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 of why some people turn to religious fundamentalism. It's what they um, fear and abhor is this um, lack of moral concern, this sort of um, drift in, into sort of um, ungrounded relativism and the, the lack of a sort of, um, uh, what we could say, the, the, the nobility and uprightness of moral education. Um, You know, there's all kinds of other gaps in our in our moral uh, outlook, specifically with regard to to the earth and nature and species. So I want to come back to them later. Um, so I don't know what again. It, some of us, uh, if you're listening to this talk, you're probably already involved in the kind of a wider tradition and context of the Dharma where we do talk about um, ethics and uh, values and what's nobility and, and kind of developing developing the citta, developing the, the, the mind and the heart and the soul and the sensibility. Um, but in the wider culture, it seems something of a taboo. And in fact, even among, um, even even let's say even in the inside meditation tradition. So one of my teachers was teaching in uh, on the west coast, I think it was, or somewhere in the states. And I heard this secondhand, so but so, gave a dharma talk one evening and made a comment about how the car park at the retreat centre was full of SUVs and their gas guzzling and diesel emissions and all the rest of it. Um, and that was woven into the Dharma talk and then got a note from a retreatant, an angry note, saying, um, I came here to learn to meditate. I didn't come here to be lectured about uh, morality or something like that. Um, which I'm sure got an answer from my teacher um, in no uncertain terms. But uh, again, 
since the inside, inside meditation world is just an open world, anyone can walk in and walk out, and what they think they're walking into, or what they think they're signing up for, um, may be much more limited than what is actually uh, on offer or part of the deal, as I would see it. So, I wonder about this possibility of like lifelong um, uh, development of sensitivity, of aspiration, of attunement, of consideration uh, with regard to ethics and, and, and values and virtues and all that. And it might still be, of course, uh, and, and here again may be a very politically incorrect thing to say, but it might also be that there are uh, there are also differences between human beings. Um, differences in, we talk about soul style. Maybe the moral character of, of souls is also, um, uh, differs. So I realize that's maybe a very unfashionable thing to say, politically incorrect as I said, um, at the moment. So, it may be that even if we have an idea of, of uh, you know, what, what might be involved in sort of uh, opening up the idea of um, a kind of open-ended development uh, through one's life of the moral sensibility, the moral courage, the moral... Uh, discernment and all that. Um, if if that's there, um, and at the same time, like in any other um, endeavor of, of 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 training, whatever it is, football, music, whatever, we recognize in people also have different capacities. Of course, that gets very dangerous, you know. Because what does that then imply about? Um, Things like democracy, etc. Um, in the again, I'm not involved in the Dharma world, so I don't know uh, quite where it's at now and what sort of regulations have come in. But there was just a few years ago some concern among Dharma teachers who were involved in that world. Um, and, and concern from others as well that mindfulness was being taught um, in a way that was really uncoupled from its basis and root in in sila, in in ethical concern and action. Um, so that I think there were some examples of kind of m- mindfulness uh, for um, s- soldiers and and. Uh, you know, in in the job of killing people, how, how can that be done more mindfully and to make that more efficient, etc. Um, and so people were trumpeting mindfulness as a kind of um, solution for all kinds of problems, but in a way that was really trying to shave off as much as much as possible of it that had anything to do, certainly with Buddhism, but also the wider the wider concerns and teachings such as ethics, etc. So that might be different now. I don't know. But I remember thinking uh, back then, you know, um, 
I'd rather somehow we taught about Jesus in schools um, rather than uh, more than more than mindfulness. Um, uh, of course, again, that's going to land in a in a funny way, but uh, potentially. But there's a kind of you know there's stories there. For if we take that example of Jesus, it doesn't have to be Jesus, of course, but um, stories that uh, illustrate. Uh, you know, kind of radical goodness and compassion and teach, touch the being and teach the being through those uh, through those kind of stories. But that that's not really possible, certainly not with Jesus. Um, uh, so religion or imposing any kind of religious education like that, um, again, it doesn't seem very PC and uh, it would lack credibility these days. Uh, Christianity is kind of a bit old hat. Um, it's it's kind of lost its, uh, for the most part, it's in mainstream society. It's lost any of its kind of capacity to um, shake things up and to uh, be vital and a sort of vital infusion and to stimulate a vital reconsideration, um, etc. Um, and as I said, we can't actually teach ethics, or it seems like we can't, because there's no agreement on its basis, um, uh, etc. But sometimes I wonder, um, in the sort of dominance of kind of non-religious, secular uh, outlooks, if if something is also lost ethically. Um, So, I really don't want to make generalizations here yet, but Nietzsche, when when Nietzsche was writing at the turn of the 20th century, just before the turn of the 20th century, um, poking fun at and deconstructing and uh, the sort of, um, what had become then a sort of empty Christian morality that was more about sort of part of his objection at least was um, it was people were just doing what they were told without considering it um, morally keeping a moral code which was more about a sort of um, code of manners and and appearances it was empty of any real vitality or life of consideration um, deep in the being and so he poked fun at the kind of um, yeah the, the the vacuousness of that, and with that, the kind of shallow morality, a lack of courage, a lack of independent thinking. But sometimes I wonder if what the 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 kind of uh, um, objects of ridicule and complaint that he found there in the sort of superficial religiosity uh, that was dominant at that time and and it really was superficial um, because by that time modernity was well along in its uh, secularizing of things but I wonder sometimes whether that those kinds of objection actually apply now less to uh, people who are religious in the sense that they they really have chosen religion and and it means something to them 
Um, so because religion is now not dominant, one actually has to choose it, to enter into it, to make a connection with it, to actively aspire to something there and find something important as opposed to it's just given to us by the culture, by the family, and one just trundles along in this um, appearance of propriety, etc. So I wonder whether actually now um, that the people who have chosen religion may have more among their ranks of those who are actually passionate about morals and who live morality and who live a kind of more radically on fire in relation to ethics. And conversely, whether those who kind of have inherited and go along with the sort of uh, atheism, secularism of modernity have among their ranks more of those who share the characteristics that Nietzsche was poking fun at. The sort of shallow morality, a lack of courage, a lack of independent thinking. Sometimes just coming across people and the whole sort of way they might relate to moral questions or even questions of life and death, um, of course, which are not divorced from moral questions, it sounds so flaccid, so sort of flabby, so sort of lacking in depth and passion and integrity and oomph and vitality. There's something just a bit blur about the whole thing. Or on the other hand, they might be very bold and strident in their in their sort of rhetoric of secularism. But somehow, when you look at the life, it's not very inspiring. It's not very noble. It's not very beautiful. So somehow, it could be that this sort of pervasive secularism has just replaced the kind of pervasive and somewhat lifeless pseudo-religious, superficial religiosity that used to be there. But again, I want to be careful about making generalizations here. But this is partly tied into the larger point I hope to make over, this, over these talks. So there's, it seems to me there's a, there's a, to some extent, or to a large extent, there's this loss of the ideal of moral education. Certainly, even in schools, I don't remember... Um, I don't remember in my secondary school ever being taught anything moral living or nobility or anything like that. And that loss of that ideal of moral education is part of our, our wider conundrum, the difficulty of our wider situation. The word vinaya that some of you will know, Pali word vinaya, uh, is, is the word for the monastic discipline or the set of rules, uh, the precepts that the monks and nuns keep specifically. And actually its etymology, naya, vinaya, means to lead away from or lead, lead apart. Uh, so it's very much related to our word education. Vinaya, the monastic discipline is an education. So the education, a, uh, in, in Latin, a ducari. So ducare is to, to lead and a is out of. So they have very similar roots. It's an education. And for the monks, that is part of their is, is a part of their larger moral education. So it's there in the tradition, this idea of the possibility of uh, moral education. We seem to have lost it. Anyway, in these talks, I just want to try 
a little bit to open up, have a look at this wider situation. I don't think there are any easy answers, and I certainly don't have any, nor kind of simple prescriptions. I'm aware, and you've probably heard it already, I feel conscious of already, that at times I may sound like an old fuddy-duddy. I may sound uh, kind of judgmental about some of these things. I may even sound conservative, which is somewhat surprising to me. But um, And I may sound elitist. I mean, that last one, I can't hide the fact. I unabashedly admit that I am an elitist in all kinds of ways. Um, but I'm going to take that risk, you know, I, I do think this, just as a, to start this, conver- to start a widening of this conversation, hopefully other, others will pick up uh, these larger considerations around ethics, soul and ethics, etc., and, and the wider global situations. Um, so I'm going to take that risk just in terms of stimulating some conversation. Actually, maybe the first thing to do before we continue is just to clear a little space with regard to the imaginal and imaginal practice and ethics. So I remember, much more particularly at the beginning, it doesn't seem to happen much now, uh, but that could be I'm just not hearing from certain people. But certainly at the beginning of my teaching, a number of people, of my teaching in the imaginal, a number of people sort of voiced concerns uh, they were attracted to the imaginal, but quite ambivalent, and voiced concerns about the seemingly problematic ethical uh, implications uh, that might be wrapped up in, in imaginal practice. So I'll just take a little time. It's probably not necessary at this point, but I will take a little time anyway to do this. Or it may not be necessary for most of you, but some of you will be in conversations with other people, or someone else might... Uh, hear something, so it's worth it's worth addressing, because the imaginal for me is certainly not immoral, and neither is it amoral, um, in the sense of it doesn't have any regard for morality or any connection with morality. So it's neither immoral nor amoral. Someone asked me really at the beginning of my teaching of the imaginal, she was quite in, quite taken to it and had quite a few experience, but we kept struggling with this with different kinds of ambivalence, one of which was uh, regard to ethics. And she said to me, well, you know, a lot of what, lot of what you say could about the imaginal could refer very easily to some kind of, I don't know, fundamentalist religious terrorist or something. Um, and so, you know, what, what about that? So let's, t- let's just pause for a little bit and address some of those concerns and issues. Um, so we have these teachings of the, the nodes of the lattice, the elements or aspects of the imaginal. And we can look at that and say, so with regard to things like, or elements like duty and trust and, and other elements of the imaginal, um, we could actually discern several crucial differences between uh, a practitioner practicing with the imaginal and, say, a religious fundamentalist terrorist, um, etc., so that, um, this was her, her example, so we use that example. So This um, terrorist um, conceives God as separate from themselves uh, and therefore as an objective reality. 
Um, and so the way we talk about divinity, in contrast, um, in in the paradigm of soul making and the imaginal, is is not as separate from ourselves, certainly not completely separate from ourselves, and not as an objective, because we participate in the creation of the divine. We've talked about this, so that would be one difference, and that's a really fundamental, that's a really significant difference. Um, we could we could add more. So by engaging. Uh, for example, in a, in a terrorist action, um, that terrorist might believe or think they are, um, they might conceive that they are participating in, quote, God's plan, for example, um, but they don't conceive or sense that they are participating in God's being. You understand? So there's a, there's a big, big difference there. I'm participating in God's plan who wants the world to be this, the whole world to be this religion and other religions to be eradicated and non-believers to be killed or whatever it is. And that's God's plan. So the, so the, so the uh, story goes. The belief goes. But they're not participating in God's being. There is also no sense or conception of being involved in creating, as I said, the sense of divinity. Um, and that is not separate from them. So, so there's very different ontologies going on. There's, there's no unfathomability and no meaningfulness or mystery. On the contrary, they are certain, this terrorist person, they are certain they know and are clear about what their duty is. My duty is to kill these people, blow up, whatever it is. There's a single meaning, not meaningfulness, this infinity of potential meanings, but there's a single meaning, or at best, a small, finite number of very clear meanings, um, rather than meaningfulness. And uh, we could continue if we consider the elements. The boundaries of self, other, and divine, they are not soft-edged and elastic at all. Um, These things have hard boundaries, self and other, divinity. And there's no concertina of images. There's just a single image, whatever that is, of the divine, of my role, etc., and uh, and it's regarded as reality. It's regarded as a reality, rather than the imaginary middle way. The sense of duty there is not um, refracted in any way. It's just literalized. The echoing, the mirroring again. It's it's all um, very li- literalized. So there's uh, many differences there that we can point out. We could probably point out more when you just uh, slow down. Let's consider. Let's consider the differences here. Um, Many of you will know Viktor Frankl, who was the founder of Logotherapy. And um, you you probably know him more from Dharma Talks, actually, where sometimes I and other teachers have quoted him a beautiful quote from a passage he's got in his book Man's Search for Meaning, which is partly a chronicle of his report of his time in Auschwitz concentration camp he was uh, imprisoned as a Jew and survived and came up with this kind of psychotherapy that he called logotherapy which is basically the healing he would say is in is in the making of meaning 
giving your life a meaning. So it's a meaning-making therapy. And it got uh, questioned on a number of fronts. One was whether it was actually, he said that, um, the, the quote that you probably know is, we, something like, we who lived through the camps can remember those who were able to choose their own way, to give away their last piece of bread, for example. He said it much nicer, but and his conclusion was: this is testimony. We bear witness; they and they bear testimony to the fact that you can take everything from a person except their right and their capacity to make meaning and to choose their own way. And he said that the people who in the in the camps who tended to survive the ordeal and and the, uh, you know, the torment tribulations of the camp, were people who had some meaning, something worth living for, that was meaningful to them. And so he said that was the the camp was the crucible in which he came up with this logotherapy, this idea of meaning-making therapy. Afterwards, uh, over the years, decades after that, it was questioned and kind of attacked on a couple of grounds. One was whether he actually hadn't come up with this theory beforehand rather than in the camps, and whether his report of uh, what he saw in the camps wasn't actually true in terms of who survived and not, uh, and didn't. But secondly, several people pointed out, well, that's actually an amoral therapy. There's no morality there. This meaning-making could be equally applied to, say, the Nazis, who found meaning in exterminating Jews and homosexuals and gypsies and communists and political opponents. So, again, there can be this concern, I think, and it's it's an understandable concern, that if you put something like the imaginal or soul-making to the fore, what about ethics? Or if you put meaning-making to the fore, what about what happens to morality? Does that does the meaning-making trump the moral? Does it make it irrelevant? If I just find meaning in something, does that mean I can do whatever I want without any regard for morality? If, if I have some image, does that mean that I can then disregard morality? But... Again, there's a a not full understanding or not consideration of what we would mean by those elements, an inclusion of what we would mean by those elements of the imaginal. So there's 28 elements, or maybe more, whatever, depending on how you count them. When, When they're taken into consideration, you start to see that, oh, when I following an image, I'm working with an image, I'm inspired by an image, I have a duty from an image. All those elements together uh, make it very different than this idea that anything, for example, a Nazi finding meaning in exterminating Jews and, and homosexuals, and that, that that's not going to have those 28 elements illuminated and ignited. It's simply not. So, I don't know about Viktor Frankl, but... If we just take it at at a sort of simple explanation of um, oh, all you need to do to find fulfillment in life is find find a meaning and make make a meaning, find a meaning, and then follow that meaning. Just that as a simple sort of strap line would not include the depth and richness and other aspects of, for instance, the imaginal that we've talked about. So
So we have concerns as human beings. Obviously, we have ethical concerns, and most most practitioners, of course, will uh, should and will have concerns ethically about their behaviour. How to discern what to choose, what to do. How can I can I trust this desire? I want this. Is it is it okay ethically? Can I trust it? How do I know? And sometimes I ask people in Dharma talks at d- different different Dharma talks over, over time, I, I might ask, what do you want? What is it that you really want? And uh, someone was saying to me uh, that she was listening and, and moved by the question, just me asking, and uh, in that context, uh, that the question went very deep in her. It was, um, it touched her very deeply, but it brought some agitation and some confusion as well, because she wondered how how does one discern what is, you know, I have this want or this desire or this eros or whatever, how do I discern what is conditioning and what is indoctrination or what is just ego, etc. And we were talking about it and I suggested that um, it might be better to look at, rather than looking to discern, oh, can I see that it's coming from ego or it's coming from conditioning or indoctrination? That might might be very hard to discern where it's coming from. But what what you can look at is the effect. So, for example, the effect on the sense of soul-making of different desires or different answers to that question of what I want. So if I just drop that question into a meditative space, I can't remember the exact context that she was talking about. And then maybe I get an answer like, I want to be rich, for example. Um, But that answer, if I look at the effects, the resonances in the being, um, rather than find, okay, did did that, is just that conditioning? Is that just ego? Is it fear? Um, And actually try and discern where it came from. What's easier to observe and probably more helpful um, in discerning is the effects on the resonances in the soul, in the being and the effects on the sense of soul-making. So, I want to be rich, if that comes as an answer. Uh, she didn't say that, but I'm, it's just an example. Um, that may not feel as deep, as soul-making, as um, uh, opening of the devotional sense, as rich, um, in, the, in the soul sense, um, as beautiful, as moving, as, as an, another desire. So that... Um, what do I trust um, uh, in terms of discerning between um, what may be more petty, more self-concerned, more fear-driven, more just an indoctrination and therefore not so authentic, more just conditioning? It may be um, that in looking at the effects in the being of of the sense of soul-making, um, I start to get a feel for what are the deeper currents of my soul and my being, what are the deeper soul desires. And uh, those uh, are, are then, then there will be the encouragement from, from me, I would say, to trust in that soul-making sense and the fullness and the multidimensionality and the beauty of what that means to the being. And I trust that um, ethics will be implicit in that. Um, partly because, remember, values, uh, which includes ethical values, are an implicit element of the uh, um, soul-making dynamic, implicit element of the imaginal. The imaginal middle way is there, so there's not this um, 
tendency to just literalize, concretize, reify in that way. Um, there's also the fullness of intention as one of the elements. And so again, it's not just about me and what I can get. There's a fuller intention there that um, all, all of these elements and aspects tend to um, not just safeguard ethics and preserve it, but actually uh, enrich in the ethical soil of what is, uh, what is happening and what is involved and, and uh, w- what's moving in the soul. Um, so, and of course there's the energy body as well. We talked about that. Um, we, could, we could go through it in a lot more detail than I'm doing right now. We talked about how the energy body can, you know, can be a guide of what to trust as well. Again, I don't think that will open up um, with that same beauty and same harmonization and energization as it will if if the ethics aren't there. It's one of the reasons the Buddha said, um, "I don't teach jhana um, with an with an unskillful object." I can't remember the exact words, but he he might also say, that "I can't teach jhana with an unskillful object because the mind doesn't tend to settle down, the body doesn't tend, the energy body doesn't tend to open up in the same way when something's really unskillful, when there's craving, when there's craving in that way." We've talked about this. It agitates and closes and contracts the energy body. It ties it in knots. When something's unskillful ethically, it's all it's all related, so that. The energy body opening, harmonizing, etc., aligning, being part of the imaginal, it's also a safeguard of the implicit ethics, implicit um, beauty of values there. Uh, as I said, some, so still, sometimes people get nervous. It doesn't, it doesn't, it hasn't happened to, or people haven't asked me this for a while, but um, back a few years ago, and so, isn't isn't imaginal dharma crazy or dangerous? What about ethics? Shouldn't shouldn't you place ethics first? Shouldn't they be given priority? And then you can ha- have imagery. Just safeguard the ethic first, and then and then have your imaginal or whatever. <clears throat> but as I just said, because values are an element of the image, um, ethics are included in 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 an image implicitly or explicitly, and in imaginal practice. And in the duty that, that comes out of it. Also, I have to say, and this is partly what I want to elaborate on in these talks, um, putting ethics, uh, placing ethics as primary, as, as this person would, would want, uh, or would, was concerned, say, so why don't you put that first? Um, putting ethics as primary um, is a deceptively simple idea. Uh, because despite the kind of soul-stirring allegiances that kind of, um, in some cases, ethical talk and talking about those kinds of things can can stimulate in us. Excuse me. Um, the actuality of moral life entails all sorts of confusions and um, difficulties, um, antinomies, meaning... Um, uh, pulls in different directions. I'm. I want to care for this ethical value, but at the same time, in this particular situation, I'm also pulled towards this other ethical value. 
and my choices are uh, offer me a contradiction. I either preserve this one or preserve that one. I either emphasize this one or I emphasize that one. I'm going to elaborate on this, hopefully, as the talks go on. Um, but this that's the actuality of our uh, moral life in, in all kinds of ways. So putting uh, placing ethics uh, as primary um, doesn't, uh, as I said, is deceptively simple. It doesn't tell us or, or instruct us or guide us with regard to these kind of difficulties, challenges, confusions, antinomies, incompletenesses, and also ultimate impossibilities. I cannot fulfill, I cannot care for this ethical value and that ethical value in this situation. It's actually um, impossible. Because I can only, I have to choose one thing. Um, so these, all those complexities and confusions and impossibilities and uh, contradictions and incompletenesses, they are unavoidably part of, of moral life and choice, um, especially today. Um, and in a way, actually, that's mirrored in um, in the sort of what Hillman would call the polytheistic psyche, the, 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 the multiplicity of images which also pull um, in our life in different directions towards different imaginal characters and their particular beauties, their particular domains and concerns, and their particular duties as well. Um, so it's understandable that people uh, a few years ago uh, voiced these ethical concerns um, when they first started to hear about imaginal um, practice. But uh, it's, it's more, more complex I think, than those initial concerns uh, uh, really understood. So, um, but, as I said, just to repeat before we, before we move on, um, uh, I would say soul-making, imaginal practice is um, ethically oriented, and not just because... Um, Values is an element of the imaginal, but also because of uh, aspects like the cosmopoesis and the sensing with soul, or sensing um, self, other, world, eros. All these things um, come more and more to be conceived and sensed, actually sensed and felt as sacred, divine, worthy of our reverence, etc. So, as we've explained with the soul making dynamic, that's part of what happens. So not just because values are an element, they are an element, but when there's um, the cosmopoiesis, when there's the sensing the soul of the self, of other human beings, of the world around me and the world of nature, of even of my desire, then the very way that I sense and conceive and think of those aspects of being and those aspects of existence, um, my relationship with them becomes very different. It becomes sacralized. It becomes the sense of uh, holiness. It becomes, uh, becomes the sense of reverence uh, implicit there. And out of, out of that, uh, we, we, we start to have a different relationship. We start to live and choose differently. And of course, it comes with that respect and care, all of which are foundational and implicit in ethics. There's also other ways, of course, and I've touched on these, and I'll, I will return to them, in which soul-making is um, uh, 
ethical and even, I would say, an expansion of our um, maybe typical range of ethical practice and perspectives. So in those talks, I mentioned them the other day as well, I can't remember in what talk of this series, but um, The Meditator's Revolutionary and The Necessity of Fantasy was talking there about the range of archetypal models um, that we receive through the Dharma um, being being a little bit limited. Um, the Buddha, not so much uh, an activist, quite given to equ- equanimity and inwardness and kind of um, a danger of kind of letting the world burn, so to speak. And um, and the range of, uh, let's say, archetypal characters of, of response um, being, being quite limited by what we receive through image and story and uh, modeling from teachers and other students in, 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 in the Dharma world, or certainly in the insight meditation world. So that there is a, a limitation, there is a we could say that there, there's a certain um, unwitting limitation on the scope of what moral care and expression uh, looks like. And through expanding uh, the self-sense and the imaginal sense and being open to more images, uh, receiving imaginal images, and how they um, open up the scope and the range of then what our moral care and expression may look like, the fantasies um, of what that, how that might be embodied, how it might um, express itself and, and look like and sound like. Um, so in addition to all that, um, It might also be that we can now come back to this later, but it might also be we can talk about soul making itself being a kind of moral value, um, perhaps even a kind of relatively new moral value. Uh, but I want to expand and elaborate and consider a lot of this further, particularly the the lacunae, the sort of gaps and holes in the fabric of our um, moral our conceptual framework of morality nowadays. Um, what are some of the needs there? Um, what's the relationship between soul-making and all that? Potentially um, the notion of values and virtues and uh, a little bit about the psychology and the philosophy that might be wrapped up in all that. Okay, but let's stop there now, just for an introduction.